You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Today's sermon is reflection on following Jesus when grief disrupts progress. It's the experience of everything was going so well. Why this? Why now? And it's where today's story meets us in that question. So as we turn to listen, let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Give us the grace through the things I say and the way we receive them to lean into your everlasting arms with trust. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in week four of a summer series on disruptions. Uh, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. Now, the, the Gospel of Mark tells the story of Jesus' life in a pretty unique way. There are a number of stories in there that uh, the story starts out, uh, another story interrupts it, disrupts it, comes in, and then Mark finishes the first story. And at one point, George um, had pulled together all of us who were going to be preaching on this. I mean, Ryan was sitting at the table. He's preaching next week, aren't you? And um, Courtney and myself, we were talking about this pattern in Mark. And um, uh, it suddenly struck that it's just such a brilliant literary device. Because it's not just that Mark's telling us what Jesus said. It's not just that he's telling us what Jesus did. But, but by disrupting, interrupting these stories... It seems like he's saying, you know, this is what it was like to follow him. It was just never that straightforward. Uh, would go along, get interrupted, come back again. And today's story is especially true in that regard. As we heard earlier, the story of John the Baptist's death is sandwiched between the story of the sending out of the 12 um, apostles, the 12 disciples on their first missionary and preaching journey around Galilee, and they're coming back. Again, And it might be helpful. If you want to, you could open your Bibles to Mark 6, uh, Mark 6, 7 to 31. I'm not actually going to read the story again because we already heard it, but I'll refer to it a number of times. Um, and so you could open that up if you like. I'll refer to Mark 1 as well if you want to put a finger back there. But that's pretty easy to find, like two pages back. Very easy. So this story begins really well. Jesus sends the 12 out two by two to make forward progress with the announcement of the kingdom of God. And they're sent out with authority over unclean spirits. They're also sent out with instructions. I love the way that um, Eugene Peterson encapsulates these instructions in his version of the New Testament called the message, which is what we heard from earlier in the story, where he says to them, listen, you're the equipment. You don't need to take a lot of extra stuff. You're the message. Don't be distracted. So they go out in verse 30. They return from this mission. They report back to Jesus what they've done. They've called people to repent, cast out many demons, anointed the sick with oil, and they were cured. And in verse 31, Jesus invites them to take a, a well-earned rest with him. Come away by yourselves to a lonely place, Jesus says in verse 31. That, that lonely place, that's a wilderness place. Come out to the wilderness place with me and rest a while. Remember that. We'll come back to it. Now, as a standalone story, this is a pretty idyllic picture of discipleship. 
Uh, and when we're doing our plans on paper as ministry people, we talk about Sundays in this way. Where Sundays we come in and, you know, we've heard the call of Jesus to the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus sends us out as disciples, as apostles into the world. We live out this gospel in word and in deed. We work for healing. We work for justice. We work for release. We work for, for, the, for the progression of the kingdom of God. And then we come back and take a well-earned rest with Jesus. But the reality is there's a lot of life that happens between verse 13 and verse 30. And it isn't always that straightforward. Grief disrupts progress in the story of the death of John the Baptist. Now, on the surface, this story is, is quite the interruption in here. In last week's story, when Jesus was literally interrupted on his way to go heal a sick girl by a woman who needed healing from a hemorrhaging disease, uh, that, that was very straightforward. It's obvious to tell it that way. I mean, he was literally interrupted. In this story, John the Baptist's death happened quite a bit before today's story. The only thing that's happening at the same time as these disciples going out is word is going out about Jesus in the region of Galilee. It has spread so far, his reputation, that there's all sorts of discussion about what sort of prophet he is. And Herod decides, hey, this is John the Baptist raised again from the dead. Now, if you're reading the story of Mark for the first time, the fact that John the Baptist was beheaded was a piece of information that would have been nice to have earlier in the plot. <laughs> Why does Mark save it till now? Why does he hold it? All the way back in Mark 1, in Mark 1.14, we're told Herod imprisoned John the Baptist. We're told at that point that Jesus picked up the message of God, the good news of God that John had been preaching, and he took it out himself into the region of Galilee. And the message he took out was this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe in the good news. That was the same message John gave. Jesus picks it up, and now in today's story, after Jesus has carried it a while, his disciples have gone with him to see how this plays out for a while, Jesus sends the disciples out with this message. And the disciples do the same things that Jesus had been doing. They cure the sick, they cast out demons, they proclaim the good news to, be go to the poor. So it began with John, moves to Jesus, moves out with the 12 disciples with such effective forward progress that even Herod recognizes this is the same message and power that he attempted to stop when he imprisoned John and brutally murdered him. And it's right here that Mark interrupts his story of the forward progress of the gospel to bring us back and relate the injustice of John's murder and the grief of his followers. See, Herod was married to a princess from the kingdom of Petra, but he took a shine to his brother Philip's wife, um, Herodias, possibly, I think, because Herodias and Herod just go so well together. Um, it's like Brangelina of the day, right? <laughs> but more likely, he married her for less poetic reasons. And this is all well and good if you don't have a very popular prophet who is rebuking you as the ruler time and time again, calling you to repent along with everyone else, but in your case, from unlawful adultery. Now, it's an annoyance to be sure, and it was making Herod's home life miserable. John, uh, I'm sorry, Mark tells us that Herodias especially was bothered by this. 
and she seemed to subscribe to the time-honored tradition of kill the messenger. Uh, Herod opts instead for damage control. He literally firewalls John behind a prison wall, keeps him away from the general public, and every once in a while brings him in to listen to him, uh, perplexed, but he's kind of interested in the guy. And Herod thinks he has this managed. He assumes the situation is under control until Salome dances. See, Herod was a man ruled by lust. Salome was the daughter of Herodias, Philip's daughter. And the birthday party makes Herod's lust painfully obvious. Drunk and excited, he offers up half of his kingdom. This is half of his kingdom, people, to a teenage girl who has piqued his desires. And the very sin that John repeatedly called on Herod to abandon is the one that ensnares Herod in the murder of John. Now listen to how Mark ends this story in 6, 29 and 30. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Do you hear it? See, John's disciples retrieve the prophet's body and give it a proper burial. A stark contrast with this immediate return in verse 30 to the story of Jesus' disciples who return with stories of success on the road. Mark is the only gospel writer to so closely connect the success of the 12 apostles in Galilee with the death of John. Right in the middle of the story of the forward progress of this message is the story of someone who was killed for it. That grief will disrupt progress. It's as if Mark is saying that there are days and times when this message of the coming kingdom of heaven is so easy to believe. When the kingdom progress is so readily measured, and for Jesus' 12 disciples in this story, it's measured in, in the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the lame walking, the evil spirits being cast out, in, in a young girl raised from the dead, in, in, a, in a woman of, with hemorrhaging healed. In our story, we can name these things, where this message is easy to believe. We have great experiences in community. People are, are reconciled and healed. Something comes to life again following Jesus. We see peace happen. We, we see healings actually happening around us, some of us. It's all going so well. And then a girl dancing before a drunken king results in the ignoble death of a righteous man. And then a plane is shot down from the sky with over 80 children on board. And then a shooter walks onto a campus in the last week of finals, just before graduation. And then a cancer is discovered that will not respond to the most aggressive of treatments. And then your parents sit down and tell you they are getting a divorce. Or then the visa does not come through and funding is withdrawn. And then and then, and then. You can fill it in yourself. You can fill it in for yourself. You can fill it in for someone else. Grief disrupts progress. Now, let me distinguish here 
between grief and disappointment. Because disappointment is when we wanted life to go a certain way and it just didn't, but hey, we can get over that. Uh, the offer on the house was not accepted. The job application did not go through. Uh, they didn't have anything left in your size at the Nordstrom anniversary sale. <laughs> Life doesn't always go our way. We get over it. Grief is when the powers that refuse to submit to the reign of God take the upper hand. Grief is the result of powers that refuse to submit to the reign of God taking the upper hand. And what is lost will not be replaced in this lifetime. Like the grief of John the Baptist's horrific killing, of random shootings, of relentless disease, of impenetrable disdain, of unrelenting, entrenched hatred. Grief comes along with the soul's protest that says, it isn't supposed to be this way. It didn't have to happen this way. And this grief can be a really significant threat to faith. I don't mean a threat to what you and I say we believe. Uh, we may say we believe the very same things. I mean a threat to faith that actually entrusts everything we are and everything we do into the everlasting arms of Jesus, Jesus like a child entrusts herself into the arms of parents who she knows loves her. I mean the kind of faith that, that doesn't hold back. Because what, what happens is when circumstances deny that the message of the gospel has the power to save, will save, has saved, is going to save, when circumstances deny that, the danger is, you know, we just pull back. We don't even notice we're doing it. But we pull back into fear. Uh, we pull back into anxiety. We pull back into anger. We pull back into cynicism. Uh, we let all those things take up residence where we used to trust. I imagine John's followers coming to Jesus on that day. And I wonder if these are the same followers who came to Jesus with the message from John while John was still alive and John was asking, are you the one or am I looking for someone else? I imagine these are the same disciples that took Jesus' message of encouragement back to John. Tell John what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. This is what Jesus said. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. We remember that part. Here's the part we tend to forget. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. I imagine Jesus' words in their hearts as the disciples retrieve John's desecrated body for a proper burial. Especially those last words. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me, because this is offensive. No one on this burial day was healed or released or raised from the dead. And I imagine them finding Jesus with the news right at the time that the twelve returned with stories of the very things John heard for his own encouragement. Blind receiving sight, lame walking, lepers cleansed, deaf hearing, poor hearing good news. And maybe this is why Mark tells the story of John's death right in the middle of this seemingly unhindered progress of the messengers of the gospel who were sent by Jesus with Jesus' authority. Because this is what we learned, Mark seems to be saying to us. 
Coming home from that first mission, we imagine the progress was measured in eyes opened and deaf hearing and, and, and lame walking and the poor getting good news and turning around. We called for repentance. We saw good things happen. And then along the way, we discovered that grief disrupts progress. John's disciples learned it early. Jesus' disciples discovered it further along the way. Do you remember? Do you remember before sundown one Friday when two followers of Jesus went to the regional ruler and asked for his desecrated body and laid it in a tomb? See, I believe that Mark sets the story of John's death alongside the story of the advance of the gospel so that we can learn the source of real progress. At this earlier point, when it was John's disciples facing grief, what is Jesus' response? Come away with me to a lonely place and rest. I imagine Jesus giving the same invitation to John's grieving and shattered disciples as he gives to his own exhilarated men. And we learn that progress is not measured in the outward signs of the kingdom, no matter how exciting they are. Progress is measured in the faith of followers who return wholeheartedly to Jesus, no matter what the circumstances. Progress in the kingdom of God is always measured in belief, in wholehearted trust. Remember the message? Repent, return, and believe. This is the invitation God's given through the prophets in the wilderness since ancient times. Do you remember Isaiah 30, 15? Probably not. I'll tell you it. This is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. And Jesus gives the same invitation. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. And here's the offense of it. When grief overtakes us, often the last thing we want is a God who says, let's step aside here and rest. Because the truth is, out in the wilderness, where we are powerless against whatever disease or injustice or hatred or evil or loss has disrupted our progress with grief, tragically, the one invitation we easily reject is an invitation to return and rest and quietness and trust. We don't want gentle and humble at heart. We want righteously angry and ready to fight on our behalf. We don't want rest, we want action. We are powerless in the face of this loss and we want a God who will act. We want a God who will go for forward progress against this disease, against this evil, against this loss, against this injustice. We want to see evidence that the kingdom of God has come and come near. What happened to the authority to cast out unclean spirits and open the eyes of the blind and heal the lame and raise the dead? Where did that all go? This is what we cry out in the middle of grief. And as Jesus said to John, blessed is anyone who takes no offense to me. It's a benediction that makes no sense surrounded by the celebration of the sighted, the hearing, the dancing, the cleansed, the living, and the well-fed. Where's the offense in that? 
It's a benediction given to the ones returning with news of a burial, of loss that will not be restored until the kingdom is restored at the return of Jesus. It's a benediction given by Jesus to the ones with faith to return, with faith to rest, with faith to still believe in the promise that life and death and the resurrection of Jesus has in fact defeated death and all that destroys in the meantime. That in life as well as in death, we belong to the Lord. It's a benediction given to the ones who return and believe that God will keep every promise has kept every promise in Jesus Christ. And that all of our activity and all of our preaching doesn't just begin in the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but returns over and over and over again to the suffering of God on the cross until we hear the words, it is finished. And we know them once again, wholeheartedly, to be true for us, to be true for our neighbors, to be true for the people we love, to be true for the stranger at the gate, to be true for the enemy at the wall. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Return, believe the good news. In return and rest is your salvation, says the Lord. In quietness and trust is your strength. This is good news. This is trustworthy news. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.